0: This episode of History of Westeros podcast is dedicated to the memory of Steve Mangiamelli, the friggin' Italian, who passed on October 13th, 2015. Without Steve, there would be no History of Westeros podcast. Though I became a part of it early on, it was started entirely by him. We are eternally grateful for this and for his overwhelmingly positive attitude in the face of serious health issues. He was a lover of all things geek, a veteran of the U.S. military, and enthusiastic even when discussing his least favorite things— His pet dog has been adopted by a close friend of his and will be taken care of. We'll miss you, Steve. This one's for you. That's the part I scripted, but I actually want to say a little more about Steve. He was... I I pointed out that he was overwhelmingly positive even in the face of serious health issues, and that is what actually caused his retirement from the show in the first place. And it was hard for him to give up, but I respected his decision at the time. He needed to take care of himself. And he was always very positive and supportive of the show even after he left it. And I'm continuously um, amazed by how he was able to stay so positive despite having really serious health issues for a long time. So, again, this one's for Steve. And for those who have sent thanks and well wishes who heard about this on, on social media ahead of time, thank you all very much for that. We appreciate it.
1: A great battle is a terrible thing. But in the midst of blood and carnage There is sometimes also beauty Beauty that could break your heart I will never forget The way the sun looked when it sat upon the red grass field Ten thousand men had died And the air was Thick with moans and lamentations. But above us, the sky turned gold and red and orange. So beautiful. It made me weep to know that my sons would never see it. It was a closer thing. And they would have you believe these days, if not for Bloodraven.
0: <sighs> Hello and welcome to another episode of History of Westeros podcast, a podcast dedicated to George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire book series, as well as HBO's Game of Thrones, of course, there's no HBO talk in today's episode. We're all in the deep in the history of Westeros around the year 196-197. The dates are unclear, but the, a lot of the facts are not. And you know what? This is another hybrid episode where we have scripting and discussion mingled together. And I find that discussion is often more appropriate when there is so much uncertainty. And there is a lot about the Redgrass Field and the campaign that preceded it that we don't know. However, as always, we're able to make some good guesses, some, in, some deductions, and you can't have a great discussion without knowledgeable people who know what's up. So please welcome back, Race for the Iron Thrones, Stephen Atwell. Hello,
2: I'm at WordPress and at Tumblr, uh, and you can also find me at Stephen Atwell on Twitter. Uh, I'm also running a Kickstarter uh, to help uh, fund the... More writing about A Song of Ice and Fire, which uh, hopefully you should be able to find in the show notes. Please support us.
0: Right on. Uh, History of Westeros is supporting Steven on his Kickstarter, so we certainly encourage the rest of you to do the same. And because the Blackfyre sigil has three heads, just like the Targaryen sigil, we've invited another community luminary and our own Warden of the West, Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, aka the Brendan B. Fish blog. Most know you as something like a lawyer. Hello and Welcome. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Jim, commonly called something like a lawyer.
3: Uh, I'm a regular writer over at Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire. Uh, I contribute to the Tumblr, and I'm also a uh, regular columnist on uh, Tower of the Hand, where I have a quarterly
0: column. Right on, yes. And I'm a regular reader of your stuff, as well as Stevens. <laughs> so I imagine a lot of you already know Jim and Stephen, certainly, since steven has been on our episodes before. But if you don't, you're about to find out, and I think you'll be pleased. So, by analyzing the politics, the characters, their personalities, ambitions, and the timelines, we showed all the reasons for the outbreak of the war. So let's describe the war itself and the action as best as we can. The first Blackfyre rebellion not only set the stage for generations of warfare, it was the first time ever that nearly all of Westeros was embroiled in a war that involved no dragons. Only the conflicts with Dorne came close, and those were largely confined to, well... Dorne (laughs) so Westeros had never seen a war on this scale even when there were dragons save for the dance itself prior to the conquest after all Westeros was not united the conquest itself was piecemeal and a lot like the ancient wars these were generally fought between two of the major kingdoms or within one of the kingdoms rather than the whole continent getting involved add that to the add to that the fact that Westeros was less populous the farther back you go and the differences really start to add up this was no mere rebellion and that makes it sound smaller than it was. After all, some, perhaps most, rebellions are small. And oft pathetically simple campaigns, easily put down and never truly threatening. The outcome, very predictable. The first Black- Blackfire rebellion was more like a civil war. Or like Robert's Rebellion. Or even a Dance of the Dragons, again, without real dragons. Or like what we might be headed for in Danny's Ark. Hmm? Now, whichever comparison you prefer, the outcome was certainly not predictable. Part 1 My Kingdom for an Arrest. At the start of Part 3, rather, at the end of Part 3, the Damon episode, we talked about the near thing that was Damon's arrest and escape, kickstarting the rebellion that was apparently going to happen fairly soon, anyhow. This started things off on the wrong foot for the loyalists, as the rebels were able to claim that the arrest was unwarranted, even though it probably was quite warranted.
2: What must Damon the Good have thought when he heard the news that Damon Blackfire had escaped the Kingsguard Knights sent to arrest him? Did he realize immediately what a mistake it was to not be more certain that the arrest succeeded? Was he struck speechless by this failure? Did he know that civil war was to follow shortly after? And did he have any idea how bad it would be? It reminds me just a little bit of Janos Slint's woefully inadequate attempt to have Sir Barristan arrested following his dismissal from Joffrey's Kingsguard. Although it was likely not so incompetent as that. Darren did send the Kingsguard, not mere guardsmen, as Selmy himself would call them. But the result wasn't much different. Both men escaped. It must have haunted him afterwards. If the arrest had succeeded, in the neighborhood of tens of thousands of deaths, could have been prevented. Had he only sent a few more men, or different men, some of the king's guard might have been quite fond of Daemon, and that might have caused them to hesitate to use force, or just hesitate in general. Had he only been more careful. After all, Fireball learned of the arrest somehow, and helped
3: to prevent it. And disappointment is not simply limited to King Daeron. I particularly wonder if Sir Gwaine Corbray, who we were told dueled Damon for an hour at the Redgrass Field, might have felt responsible for the failed arrest and the later war. Maybe he was the one in charge of the arrest, and he would have blamed himself for allowing Damon to escape, and sought him out on the battlefield to atone for his failure. And academically, we can say, yes, that must weigh heavily on the conscience. But I don't think we have the ability to know what it feels like to come face to face with your own shortcomings and failures leading to the deaths of tens of thousands of people.
0: And that's just part of the burden of being a king. Heavy is the crown. Yeah, right. (laughs) Very true. And now on the other side of things, what must Damon have been thinking? Men had been pushing him for years to rebel, though he never did. Now it seems his hand had been forced, or at least that's what Damon and his brain trust went around telling people. Bloodraven told Daron that Ble- Damon really was going to take the crown. So, quick discussion point here. What do you guys think? Was Do you think Bloodraven was lying or exaggerating to force things to come to a head? Maybe somewhat. I mean, I think he
2: probably portrayed the level of organization as more advanced than it probably was. You know, I, I think it's the difference of sort of saying, you know, people are talking versus it's going to happen next Tuesday.
1: <laughs> because if yeah. we
2: look at the rebellion that follows the level of organization the level of uh you know supplies and coordination that must have gone into it that couldn't have been done on the spot that would have required months of, of work
0: but yeah you, know, you, yeah, you don't working. you can't it's hard to organize lots of men in secret yeah. like that. right yeah but at
2: the same time i think for a lot of people, it was very much, you know, where they were going to land was up in the air. And I think the, ironically, you know, and I think this, this points to sort of a long-running thing with Raven that his kind of insistent intervention forced people to come down one way or another. You know, and if oh, you had previously point. been sort of playing footsie with, you know, with Bittersteel, mm-hmm. you were kind of, you didn't really have a choice. You had to come out pretty strongly in favor of the black dragon because you knew that you were screwed the other way.
0: Yeah, that's very true. And what what also another question I want to ask in related relation to that is what kinds of things might Damon have been doing to get ready for war, assuming he really was? Was he obviously he wasn't marshaling armies, that would be too obvious, although some lords could maybe be you know, making a few extra swords in secret, things like that, that are relatively easy to keep under wraps. And there's also things he could be doing overseas, maybe prep, maybe uh, reaching out to Tyrosh, his his extended family there. What do you guys think? You think he was pretty far along, or do you think that it was still in the infancy stage, or is it just too hard to tell? It, it's hard to say, but I do think that Damon has
3: this charisma, this personal uh, this you know, personal gregariousness that he uses to form very close relationships with a lot of, even people like Sir Eustace Osgray, who had actually been marching uh, in a different unit seemed to just, he seems to tear up and go into full nostalgia mode when it comes to talking about uh, Damon. So it seems like I would say that Damon's best action would simply be to be meeting with people and making strong relationships with them. Uh if, Bitter Steel, or not Bitter Steel, uh, if Blood Raven is going to force this thing to come to a head, and Blood Raven is very interventionist and would probably do something like that, that might force people to just make the decision based on whether they like Dayron or Damon more. Because if, if it comes up suddenly and you have to make a choice, you're not going to go and think it through logically. You're going to make a choice because you're forced to. It's that whole emotion. Uh, emotion winning out over a rational and critical thought.
2: I think, also, if we think about the kinds of evidence that there could be, I mean, really, either he had spies who overheard something, or he intercepted letters. And my guess is that probably Damon was in the stage of of trying to gauge his support. So what he probably had were a lot of statements to the effect of, if it comes down to it, will you support
0: Yeah, rather than saying, I'm going to do it, can I count on you? Because that's, you know, that's directly, that's treason.
2: Yeah, and I think the ambiguity is, what does that mean exactly? Does that mean, will you vote for me in a great council? Does that mean, will you support a coup? Does that mean, will you marshal your banners for me in the event of a civil war I'm about to start? There's a lot of ambiguity in there. And I think the same thing was probably true with overseas preparations. You know, he's Damon is married to a high-ranking lady of Tyrosh. For him to reach out to his in-laws for political support is completely normal. What that yeah. support extent, you know, extends to, on the other hand, could be construed in very different ways. If it's a loan, that's one thing. If it's, I need you to get the the archon to you know, assemble his navy and attack Westeros. That's a very different story.
0: Coming down to it, what does that actually mean? You're right. It's like it's a very generic thing. Come down to it, could be like you said, a great council. It could be out, flat out war.
3: And then there's the question of how was this information presented to Daron Because Dayron, at least from what we see, Dayron is the one that signed off on the arrest. So, did Blood Raven just simply say, "Here's all the evidence I have," and show him the evidence, or did Blood Raven say, uh, "I've got the evidence. Don't worry about it. I know he's plotting something." So it's a matter of who exactly knows what and blood raven is certainly a guy who is no fool when it comes to information uh, secrecy and information security he's not going to tip his hand if he can help it and he if he's saying well let's go and take out Bittersteel and Damon," he's not going to risk Darron
0: saying no mm. so you would you would he would maybe like fudge just a little bit just to make sure that his point is carried
2: yeah I mean, it's a lot like, um, it's a lot like a, a prosecutor in front of a grand jury, right? He, Bloodraven is not going to feel morally bound to like present a you know, information. He's going to be like, look, I think this son of a bitch is guilty. Here's all of the evidence. And here's what I think it means.
0: Yeah. He's not playing. He's not trying to play fair. He's trying to get a result that he wants. And, and to be fair, it might be, he's arguably correct. Uh, after all the, he was the war happened if the arrest had succeeded it wouldn't have and you can you can say hey blood raven was right um, maybe at least there's a case to be made and there's also an interesting point it also fits with blood raven's personality we know he's a hardliner we know he is willing to go as far as he thinks he needs to go which is pretty far in terms of taking action in terms of preventing what he thinks is a great the greater evil now, in any case, whatever the truth, whatever the real intent, the fuse was lit. Little was little was going to stop it once it got going. War was coming, and the realm at large began to rouse and prepare. But even with a sense of urgency, these things take time. Messages went to all corners of the realm by raven or rider. Knights sharpened their swords. Lords considered their options. And they considered their neighbors and what their neighbors might be doing, because that's always a huge consideration, especially in, in a situation like this where it could go either way and you have no idea who your neighbor is going to be fighting for. So we're going to examine that phenomenon and other recruiting and propaganda topics in part two, Red or Black, Recruitment, Propaganda, and Ambition.
1: Red or Black was a dangerous question even now. Since the days of Aegon the Conqueror, the arms of House Targaryen had borne a three-headed dragon. Red on Black. Damon the Pretender had reversed those colors on his own banners, as many bastards did.
2: The quote says even now, because it comes around 15 years after the Redgrass Field, so you can realize it was surely even more dangerous than the war itself. Many long-time friends became enemies overnight. Others may have sensed a potential danger and declared for one side or the other simply because so many of their nearby, uh, nearby lords and knights did the same. If you're a lord with, say, 500 men, and the nearest three lords are all loyalists with more men than you, are you going to declare for the Black Dragon? That would certainly give a lot of people pause. But I'm guessing a surprising number of people took that risk. Such was the power of Damon's charisma that many would sacrifice their own best interests. Others did the exact opposite, as a means to take from their neighbors. Many long-term enemies used the outbreak of hostilities as an excuse to revisit old grudges while others sat on the fence like Tywin did during Robert's Rebellion, waiting to see which side would gain the upper hand before they committed themselves.
0: Yeah, I liken Damon's followers to seeing this as some kind of um, dragon's moot, (laughs) except with fighting instead of voting. Regardless, his men were completely bought in one way or the other, be it true devotion to Damon's immense charisma, genuine belief in the parentage of Damon and Daron, meaning believing that Daron is the bastard and Damon the truer born, or good old fashioned opportunistic ambition, or some combination of the above. There's no reason to assume that people could only get in on one of these reasons. Daron's loyalists saw the rebellion as a naked power grab, tearing up the realm for ego, treason, pure and simple. Though surely some of them sympathized with Damon and much of what he represented, but still stayed loyal because they valued their, their honor more than they valued what they liked about Damon and what they thought he might do as king. Now, lords call up their peasant levies in time of war, and sometimes coaxing, coercion, or even threats are necessary to get them in line. The Blackfyre Rebellion was a different animal. Surely, as usual, many would vastly prefer to be left alone and stay at home, but there would be less of that. More eagerness to participate. Many would-be conscripts became volunteers, but it was also chaotic. Normally, there are regional factions, but lords with formerly peaceable borders now found themselves with enemies close by, or in some cases, all around it's important to think about how exactly this goes down the logistics
3: of winning supporters is very difficult than we would do today in, in our communications revolution society you'd have to have riders go to villages and castles carrying daemon's uh, message calling for support condemning daeron for his unjust arrest and we see this in the in the main book series when we see stannis's letter and how he sends a hundred me, uh, literate men, better with notes than they are with swords, to proclaim his message to commonborn and nobles alike. And those were, those that were on the fence, surely those who must have met Damon in person were the ones most likely to be swayed over to the side of the black. So I think I speak for all three of us when I say that Damon had a lot of time, spent a lot of time prior to the redgrass field being seen, going around, letting its natural charisma work its magic. He and his advisors must have realized that, that he was one of their most potent recruiting tools. The more exposure Damon gets, the more support he wins.
0: yeah and, and, and whenever he couldn't be present, of course, just tales of his deeds and his being and you know people most people would have heard of him already, but having more people come get in your face and tell you how important it is right now. and there's no one to say otherwise. I mean surely some of these villages were visited by both loyalists and rebel leaders but. And all they can do is make up their mind based on whose argument is more convincing. They have no ability to examine the facts in any way at all.
2: You know, speaking of, of sort of his personal, you know, charisma, one of the things that's interesting in the way that they always word the outbreak of, of the first Blackfire Rebellion is Damon raising his banner. Mm. That's not just a metaphor. That's. You know, he he literally... He's physically present at a ceremony where he's raising this banner. Where you would have brought as many people as possible. So, this is, you know, because this is feudal politics, this is a politics of, you know, people uh, of, of the body, really. You know, so he's physically present, the banner's physically present, other people, as many bodies as you can, you try and get them there. And then that ripples outward, so... You know, the, the banner then becomes a symbol of the body. So you, you send out the fire banner to as many regions as possible so that if you can't pledge your loyalty to the guy himself, then you at least pledge it to his symbol. You know, it, it reminds me a little bit of how um, traditionally kings would touch banners of regiments and physically hand them over to the regiment to sort of endow it with their
0: essence. Where do you think this banner ceremony would have happened?
3: The, yeah, reach. Probably, the reach. Where in the Reach? Yeah, I don't know. Probably yeah, in, reach, his, I... in his
0: capital in exile.
3: Uh, it would be the Reach, because his own keep is too close to uh, the Red Keep. Yeah. Uh, and, right.
2: We just uh, still don't know where yeah, that is.
3: <laughs> and it's important to note how many, how many parallels he's drawing to Aegon the Conqueror. Because Aegon the Conqueror did the exact same thing when he finally exactly, declared himself yeah. the High King of Westeros, is he specifically assimilated into Westerosi into Westerosi uh, culture by taking up this banner? He had it unfurled in a grand ceremony in front of his vassals, and now you have Daemon, who is the, probably the best warrior of his age, and then you have he's got the sword Blackfire, which because of the loss of Aegon's crown. In Daron's conquest, uh, in Daron's conquest of Dorne, that is the only symbol they have left of Aegon the Conqueror. So that's a huge, essentially, that is a hero cult, a mythos that Daemon is assuming when he
0: takes up, when he does this giant ceremony with the banner. With that sword present, too, it must really add to the majesty of the ceremony. And and whenever he's seen in person, he shows people the sword, people who have never seen it before. It's probably a really badass-looking sword. And that alone would be like, wow, look at that thing. Yes, this guy's king. (laughs) (laughs) Just by itself. And along the lines of symbolism, too... I'm, it, looked, it appears that Daemon, or at least his brain trust, had that in mind as well, and understood this power of symbolism, because we we have this little tidbit about some guy named Quickfinger who was trying to steal dragon eggs. He was caught, apparently, presumably executed. Now, had he succeeded, they would have had more symbols of legitimacy. Dragon eggs, not necessarily harkening back to Aegon, but they certainly harken back to the Targaryen power base and to the the age when they had dragons. So that's kind oh, of important. Kind of.
2: And there's also, you know, I mean, there's a question of how symbolic that was intended to be. Daemon's son believed that he could bring a dragon egg to life, that he, <laughs> you know, had the prophetic vision. Now, given that that prophetic tendency tends to be passed down from, you know, within the Targaryen bloodline, it's quite possible that Daemon himself had that.
0: Oh, yeah, you know, I and he might have no believed, you
2: know. Given that he saw himself clearly as another Aegon the Conqueror, he may have thought, if you put a dragon egg in my hands, I can make it hatch. Mm. And what... I mean, if you think about it, what better evidence of, like, who's the real Targaryen and who's not would there be? You know, Mm. if if that (laughs) egg had hatched...
0: Oh my. (laughs) There wouldn't have been a civil war. It would have been
2: over in, you know, without a single blow being struck because... Everyone recognizes what makes you a real Targaryen. <laughs>
0: Even Daron would have been like, all right, yep, you got me. <laughs> he has a dragon. All right, then. <laughs> and there's also part of the other propaganda
3: is uh, Daeron's counselors are exclusively Septons and Dornishmen. I mean, they, they go, uh, Eustace goes all, uh, all through that. Whereas you see the traditional Westerosi model of uh, advisors, Bittersteel, Fireball. Uh, all of these great and legendary knights. And then, most importantly, you have Bloodraven. And in a society like Westeros, where they judge you, yes, based on your physical appearance, Bloodraven, he did—he hasn't lost his eye yet, but he's still albino and creepy and suspected of being a sorcerer. A lot of these Westerosi might have just thought that this is actually a, a reach back to the actual true Targaryenness uh Damon is the new Aegon as opposed to uh Daron who is these weaker Targaryen kings the uh, the anus uh the weak the um the Aegon the second the guy who g- gets into one fight and then is incapacitated for a year
0: yeah these things would certainly be brought up by both sides have a lot of things they can say mm-hmm. But it seems like Damon may have had Damon's people may have had the upper hand just because of how Westeros is and how Daron was a a bringer of change, a peace bringer. He didn't always do it right, but that was his attitude. And a lot of people just are offended by that on the surface. They're like peace, that's you know, just look at how the Ironborn reacted to the notion of peace when Asha suggested it. And of course they're maybe a little bit more extreme, but they're not that extreme in terms of their desire to prove themselves in battle or in fighting or whatever, something that Daron is threatening. So there's all these things back and forth of Damon's charisma versus the honor of, of staying with your king. And I, I'm curious, surely Daron's people understood that Damon's charisma was a powerful weapon that they were using. Do you think that there was anything that they tried to do to combat that? Anything they could do to undermine his charisma or was it just a losing battle and they had to approach it from a different way?
2: Well, I mean, I think part of the difficulty is that, you know, in a feudal system... It takes time to pull a military together. You know, Daron does not have outside of the, the gold cloaks, and God knows their loyalty isn't particularly trustworthy ever, you know, doesn't have a standing army. He's got to he's got to do the same thing that that uh, that Damon does and rally the banners. But he also has a problem that Damon doesn't have, which is he's dealing with his hand of the king, Lord Butterwell, who at the very least, was not taking the Rebellion very seriously, which led a lot of people to suspect that he was actually a secret Blackfire supporter, eventually would lead to his removal from office, but a lot of time passed in between the beginning of the war and the removal of Lord Butterwell, which means there's a lot of time in which there is really no one
0: coordinating loyalist efforts. It's similar to this the slowness that Arius' people reacted to Robert. Maybe not not super similar, but there's some very similar things about it as far as the slowness of the loyalist side to react and to realize how big the danger was. Although in this case, it seems to have been incompetence in Arius' people's case. And in Butterwell's case, it might have been on purpose, but it may have also been incompetence. It's hard to say. <laughs> and that, I think... Is interesting because I think it might have been in Daron's best interest to force a decisive battle as soon as possible before Damon gained more strength if he believed that time was on Damon's side. But I'm not sure that's true because he might have not have, he may have feared that Damon was bringing so many warrior types to his side. He may have worried about the outcome of a decisive battle. What do you guys think about that? Well, certainly, Daron has to know that when it comes
3: to battle, he is going to be outmatched, just simply because all of the famous lords are go- and the more populous reach are at the heart of Damon's support. Uh, Daeron has more support, but they are spread out over the continent, and even in the best travel scenario you can, Casterly Rock and the Lannister levies are still going to be weeks and months away. And so... Yes. If he, if he, and also, if he forces a decisive battle and loses, he's done. He has, I mean, yeah. best case scenario is he 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 get he, he gets a ship to Essos. And Daemon has support in Tyrosh. And Daeron really doesn't have, I mean, Valar marries Kira of Tyrosh, but that's not too much later. Uh, so he really, Daeron is stuck in what we like to call a Jugzhuang. A Zhuang is when you have to make a move but all of the, the choices you make are disadvantageous. It's a it's a move, it's a term in chess, but it applies to greater game theory in general. When you have to do something, but all of your options are bad, you just have to go for the least bad you could. And that's what uh yeah. that's what
0: De'Ron did. Yeah, lesser of two evils. So maybe to touch back on what I just said, maybe it would be better to say that Daron might have wanted to force a decisive battle if it could be done quickly enough. Uh, if not, it would become too risky. Then he would have to do a different sort of campaign. Though that might not be accurate either, depending on circumstances that we're just not aware of. So
3: He just didn't have the logistics to force a decisive, a decisive battle if that's yeah. what he wanted. It just
0: wasn't possible. It may have been in his best interest, but it just wasn't possible, yeah. And
2: also, given the, the relative distribution of where the loyalists and uh, rebels were, it may have been that he was waiting to see, in some cases, what support he could count on. You know, he might not have That's known true. who was going to ultimately win out in some of the regions. And especially, you know, I think Jim makes a very good point. He's not going to commit to that all or nothing battle if, unless he's sure that he's got at least a fighting chance of winning.
0: Agree. And also, it, it becomes important to point out that had Daron force the battle too early it would have and it not been even if it hadn't been a large engagement like a major early battle but not a decisive battle it would definitely help Damon even more because it would be like hey look I've already we've already won this one important battle but as it was there were just a lot of small battles scattered throughout although the, from what we hear it seems like the rebels were getting the best of it but we of course again don't have full information now another point that's important we're about to get into this more thoroughly in more detail is the regions, as you say, Stephen and Jim both, how some of these regions were undecided and how neither Damon or Daron knew where which side they would take. Some of those regions stayed neutral the entire time. On, we're going to get into some reasons why that is. But we have to point out that we've been talking a lot about Damon's charisma and his charm, etc. But it isn't just that. At the beginning of this part... We talk about how ambition was really important as well. So Eustace
1: chose the black dragon over the red in the hope that a Blackfyre king might restore the lands and castles that the Osgrays had lost under the
0: Targaryens. So Eustace himself says it was about far more than that. And I sort of believe him, but never forget that ambition was ever-present. You can't offer somebody lands and titles in Westeros and not have them their eyes light up even the most penitent you, know, you got to be Baylor the blessed and not be moved by that option <laughs> because life without lands and titles in Westeros is really hard and it's like ascending it's you're like you become a minor deity <laughs> if you have lands and title it's like that's the difference in being a commoner and being a lord so it's a really hard thing it's gonna it's gonna make ambi- regular people ambitious to having that kind of thing put in front of you and ambitious people, hyper ambitious. But a few other things that matter, some of these things we've talked over before, but we wanna go over them briefly just to make sure everyone's got them in mind. So real quickly, what are some other things that can bring men to Damon's cause? Ancestral memory, blood debts, things like that. What are some other suggestions?
2: The legacy of the wars with Dorne and the the conflict in the marches, you know, that's definitely going to apply uh, excuse me, apply to the sort of the, the lords of the realm, right? You know, that's going to apply to your Reacher Lords, it's going to apply to your Marcher Lords. But it's also knights and commoners, because they're the ones who suffer the brunt of the conflict, right? It's the commoners whose whose farms get torched, you know, every time that a border lord decides to to go raiding over on the other side it's the knights who end up fighting and dying in those you know cattle raids and that kind of process works both ways right you know if you're yes. on one side of that border you're going to be more likely to fall under uh, damon's side if you're on the other more likely for daron
0: yeah i can see it, it does like you say it cuts both ways some of these factors are precisely why people went to damon but some of them are precisely why they stayed with daron because they're sick of that back and forth they're sick of being you know, there'd be people that for generations and generations have just been fighting. And, you know, even though Westeros is very warlike, some people are going to be sick of that violence. Some people are going to be ready for peace, ready for raising cattle and growing fat and not having to worry about their neighbor coming to steal it. Certainly that appeals to some people and they would get that from Darron. They understood that, at least to a certain point. So, but also, in general... It seems to me like from what we know about the way the war carried out and the things that led up to the Battle of the Redgrass Field, in general, it seems that the rebels were energetic, that they had the initiative. It was the the loyalists constantly had to respond to what the rebels were doing. And that's a good place to be in war. And it speaks to Sir Eustace's point about how close it was, which we'll be seeing very well as we get to the battle itself. Do you guys agree with that, that it seemed like the rebels had the initiative most of the time they were kind of driving the action and it was the loyalists kind of on their heels responding
2: yeah i mean especially when you look at the the descriptions of the few battles that we know what happened
0: they're almost always
2: the rebels on the offensive and the loyalists on the defensive
3: and one thing is important to know is that rebel movements usually have the first move advantage in wars because by nature a rebel movement has to be declared and then they can choose when to pursue their first aggressive move, as opposed to a loyalist. By nature, you can't ha- be a re- you can't be a rebel against nothing at all. You have to be a rebel against something established. So the rebels get the advantage of being able to choose to move first. I mean, certainly uh, the whole arrest kind of forced their hand, but they were still able to declare themselves first because they were the the
0: rebel aggressor. Right. They started first. They started the aggression. Yeah, that makes sense that they would have the initiative because they went first, basically. Well,
2: and and the other thing is they can pick their target, right? The, the loyalists mm. have to hold down the whole of the kingdom. The rebels can decide where they want to hit. Now, yeah. you know, there's, there's factors that determine that in terms of where they're strong and where they're weak. But they've got a very target-rich environment, whereas, you know, the loyalists by their very nature, have to hold down the whole of the territory. And that
3: goes into rebels. Rebels have to attack. Loyal, if nothing happens and the loyalists just hold on to the territory and no conflict happens, that's a loyalist victory by, by no uncertain terms. If the loyalists simply hold their territory, they win. So by nature, their objectives, rebels are attackers and loyalists are defenders. Now, that's not always the case, but if... All Rebels, all Loyalists need to do is hold, hold territory.
0: Yeah, it's less flashy, but it's true. You know, there's there's something sexier about attacking and winning versus beating off an attack. But still, that is what that's the position they found themselves in for a while. At least I'm sure that at some point there were some Loyalist counterattacks, but we don't really hear about them. Now, let us move on to talking about the realms that didn't participate and why. There's a companion piece published on www.historyofwesteros.com where it will detail who fought for who. We thought it was a bit too dense and because there's just so many houses to go over to include it in this episode. So we made it into a blog post. You'll be able to find it up there. It's the most recent blog post. If you're watching or listening to this episode well after its release date, it's well-marked. You'll be able to find it. So look for who your favorite houses were and which side they fought for. But the North was not involved at all as far as we know. We have no names of any northern lords or fighters involved at all and it seems like the kind of thing the north might sit out. You could definitely see them getting involved because plenty of guys up in the north love fighting and getting involved into wars. A good way for them to get out of the north and there's plenty of plunder in the south, right? But, and the war was long enough for them to get involved if they wanted to. Sometimes, you know, it takes a while for those soldiers to march south. Rob did it quickly but that's, but he left behind a lot of men. We know that based on the men status picked up later. So, but there's another theory. We think that it, there may have been too much going on in the North for them to get involved. It may not be that they wanted to stay neutral. It may have, their hand may have been forced. So let's talk a little bit about the possibility that there was a Skagosi rebellion around this time. We know that there was a Skagosi rebellion around this time. We don't know if it was a few years later, a few years before. But we know it was bad. We know it was brutal. We know a lord of... We know Barth, Barthagin, Blacksword Stark, was killed during this rebellion. He was the Lord of Winterfell at the time. So what do you guys think of, about that possibility as the major reason why the Starks stayed out? Or perhaps you might suggest a different reason. I mean,
2: that certainly makes sense. I think, again, it points to the difficulty of the degree of information that we have available. It's just that we don't know when the Skagosi Rebellion happened. I mean, we know it was roughly in the same time period, but, you know... I think there's a couple different scenarios in which it prevents participation. If it happened after the rebellion started, but soon after, right? It could be the North mobilizes for either side, but then has to shift its preparedness over to dealing with the rebellion. If it happened before, then it's quite likely that the North was, you know, licking its wounds. It was too busy recovering from the damage that the rebellion did and if it happened at the same time then obviously you know they, there's not a lot you can do when you know all of a sudden you've got a rebellion on your hand
0: we also hear that the time period after the death of Rickon Stark in the war or the conquest of Dorne uh things were bad in the north for a while after that um even with Cregan Stark still around and it could be that the the the, the people that followed Cregan his sons that followed him were not the best of yeah, leaders I
2: mean we're gonna have to wait for the next Duncan Egg story about the, <laughs> you know, the she wolves of Winterfell. But it's quite possible there might have been not exactly an open civil war within House Stark because I think that would have been too important not to have been recorded. But like a cold war within House Stark about uh-huh. who really, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, about who really held authority. And if House Stark is divided within itself about what to do that alone might be the reason that they didn't raise the banners.
3: Yep, that's a good point. It's my personal pet theory that the half-brothers of uh Rickon Stark, the son of the old man in the north and the one-day hand, were involved in a factional struggle for to be the one sitting on Winterfell. And uh, mm. that's when you get uh, you also get uh, Serena and old Sansa Stark, and they end up not being able to get any influence in Winterfell at all, so really it's, it's a Stark family power uh, power struggle, and I think actually that some of the the problems that the North had were in fact uh, essentially proxy wars, sh- uh, shadow sh- smoke screens essentially, mm-hmm. for one of the half-brothers to take control of Winterfell and be the Lord Paramount in the North, and that sort of yeah. distraction would certainly
0: certainly uh, occupy the north for a very long period of time. We really need to know more yeah. about that time period. It sounds really cool. Now, but there's another factor. We talked about how important ambition was and Damon's charisma and Daron's aims for peace. This the north wouldn't care about any of that. In general, they don't they're not big on you know, making gains towards peace. They don't care about that that much. They don't care about Damon's charm. They don't care that he was handsome. They they care that he was a good fighter, probably. They could respect that. But, but they don't care about knighthood. Uh, yeah, that's true. And they also, the the ambition angle is entirely different. There's no second best house that could have, parlayed this into becoming the top house. That the situation for the Rains displacing the Casterlys, I mean displacing the Lannisters, sure, I could see that. Is the case for the Peaks or someone else replacing the Tyrells? I could see that definitely. But the Boltons aren't going to replace the Starks in this case. It took very special circumstances for for Roose and Ramsay to make the move that they've made and it still is they're on thin ice. Pun again intended. Right. And
2: the the problem at the time was not that there were Too few Starks, but too many, right? You know, at the time when, when Roose Bolton managed to take over, he had the fortune that there were relatively few Starks and that they happened to seem like they were dropping like flies. Whereas the Starks have multiple redundant, you know, lines of descent who could, you know, rise up against any usurper and have, you know, a much stronger claim to the lordship of Winterfell.
0: Especially, and this has just occurred to me especially if those in, those half brothers, if they their infighting involved wanting to stay out of the wars in the south, because one of them would have to go there as a leader of men, and that creates all kinds of problems. Either the guy comes back with loot and reputation, royal and favor, has a, yeah, and royal favor, great point, and he that which gives him a huge leg up over his brothers, or The alternate, they don't want to go south because what's his brother going to do while he's in the south? He's going to, you know, take Winterfell and, you know, do whatever dirty work behind while the the Lord is away leading troops in the south. So a lot of potential there for the infighting being the reason why they stayed out of things. Now, we have some similar things to say about the Iron Islands because it doesn't seem like they were involved either. Now, of course, there was no Skagosi rebellion deal for the the Iron Men to deal with, but... The similarity is that we don't know what their involvement was. And there's a great chance that they had little to no involvement at all. What do you guys think about, what is the, how does this apply, the things that apply to the Starks? How do they apply here? Or is it a different scenario? I think the fact that they're an island nation certainly helps them stay out of things. But that's certainly not well, I think the only thing. They're going to
3: know in, intently that this is mostly going to be a land war. And it's probably going to be a land war that does not, it's not near the coast. And I mean, sure, some of t- sometimes their boats can go up certain rivers, but that's they're going to be too isolated, and they're more raiders as opposed to uh, fighters. And of course, let's just not forget the last time that Westeros asked the Greyjoys for help, and Dalton Greyjoy just couldn't stop <laughs> reaving Lannisport. So I would certainly <laughs> think that Damon and Daron would both be
0: like, mm, maybe not. Let's agree to let's agree to neither of us recruit them <laughs> kind of tacitly. <laughs> and finally, also there's uh, Dagon Greyjoy who would arise about 15 years later, but he may have already been Lord Reaper and he may have already had a reputation for untrustworthiness at which would be added to by the Dalton Greyjoy's reputation. Uh, and Dagon's father might've been a real piece of work too. We don't know.
2: I, I will uh, raise one potential counter point. Which is sure. we don't know precisely who came first, Torwin or Dagon.
0: That's true. So Torwin would be the one who we're told betrayed Bittersteel.
2: Right. So it you know, partly I think the difficulty is just we're dealing with we're, we're dealing with fragmentary information. We know yes. this one fact about the any link that the Greyjoys had to the Blackfyre rebellions, and that's about it.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Okay, let's talk about other regions. There's not, as we said, there's not a whole lot that we can really dig into with the Iron Islands. We just feel pretty strongly that they probably weren't involved, but we don't know for sure. Now, overseas support. We talked about how Damon had his family connection to the Tairashi, and that's bound to be of value, if not of significant value, although we have no, again, no evidence or data on how the Tairashi got involved, whether they sent money or some ships. It's quite likely that they were the ships that Bittersteel used to escape after the battle, but even that is not sure. Uh, Daron would eventually arrange a marriage to another Tairashi noblewoman, Kiera, who we mentioned briefly earlier. And this was perhaps as a counterbalance to get some of the Tairashi support back on their side rather than having them fully in the Blackfire court. This marriage was clearly important because Kiera of Tyrosh married two different Targaryens. Balor's heir is Valar, and Valar married Kiera, and that meant that he was going to be king eventually because he was Balor's heir. So that that shows you how important this marriage was. They married Kiera of Tyrosh to the eventual heir to the throne. And of course, that was the case with Daron as well, because he was also the eventual heir to the throne. But that didn't work out as well as they thought, perhaps. The
2: difficulty is because we're dealing with Essos. These are not monarchical families, right? Kira or Rohan of Tyrosh, we don't know what families they belong to. So it's quite possible that Rohan of Tyrosh, her, you know, kinsmen lost an election, then maybe Kira's family won an election, and then lost it the next time round because there's annual elections for who gets to be the Archon of Tyrosh. Also, another, another thing that's kind of interesting to think about is because this fits into a pre-existing power struggle in Essos, what one side decides to do, another side will probably decide to do the opposite. So, if Tyrosh and possibly Mir, right, because Lord Bracken goes to get mercenary crossbowmen from Mir, if they're backing the Blackfires, quite possibly Lys, Pentos, Bravos, maybe Volantis, will decide to go the other direction, because they don't want Tyrosh and Mir getting an ally on the Iron Throne of Westeros.
3: Especially when it comes to places like uh, Lys and Braavos, which are island nations and are notably very soil poor in terms of food and timber. And both of these places are going to need ships. And they even, there's even in Braavos, they say that you can't cut down the trees because they need to break up the wind. So they're massive importers of grain and lumber. And where else are you going to find that but westeros the, pretty much the agriculture super i mean that that's all of their their products are essentially agricultural and other resource based products so any any free city that has an ally on the iron throne and has a master of coin conducive to them are going to get lucrative trade deals so when esso's metals in in Westerosi politics you can bet that other actors in Essos are going to meddle in the other with the other
0: faction definitely and there's one other tidbit we have on terms of dealing with the foreign powers in terms of the Blackfyre rebellion and that is that we have a tidbit where Lord Bracken went to Myr to acquire presumably mercenary crossbowmen now that we can build on and assume that these men did not make it we know that these men did not make it to the battle in time But that doesn't mean there weren't other mercenaries that were brought over prior to that that did make it in time. It's just that we don't hear of them. But it's entirely possible that some of these efforts did succeed, but they were not enough. I don't know that Daron is likely to have hired any sellswords, but it's possible considering they probably needed all the help they could get. You can, you can support History of Westeros with a regular PayPal donation. Go to historyofwesteros.com and click on the Donate button and support the work we're doing here and help us create new episodes. We're got, we've got a lot in the tank. We've got a lot of episodes coming up. I'm excited. We've gotten, I've gotten to create a lot more time for working on episodes and the, the effect of that will be felt in the coming months as these episodes are made.
1: Part 3, The Battle wow. of the Forward. Many battles were fought between the black and red dragons In the Vale, the Westerlands,
0: the Riverlands, and elsewhere I mean, you don't just have a declaration of war And then a large battle to side things It's not that simple Well, sometimes you get that But it's rarely that easy We've shown some of that complexity As it played out in determining which king to fight for Recruitment Why people would fight for both sides We're gonna move forward just a little bit And try to look at things from a higher level realizing that all this recruiting and posturing and jockeying for position was happening as a constant thing it was always going on one corner of the realm or other was always engaged in these small skirmishes or larger battles both of these things were happening all over the place but eventually they moved out of the smaller battle stage and these larger hosts started to coalesce The sides started to become clearer. Who was fighting for who became more clear. Everyone kind of had the idea, news would spread. Campaigns became a little easier to follow. So let's do something fun here. I'm gonna have each of these guys, each of our guests, Stephen and Jim, are each gonna take us through the way they think the campaign generally played out, including the small battles that we are aware of, maybe guesstimating a few others. So let's see, Stephen, let's start with you.
2: Okay. So I have a, a theory, and it differs from Jim's. And my theory is based on given that Damon did not have the support, or at least the open support, of any of the, the Lords Paramount, I think he was at least starting the war relatively numerically disadvantaged, at least in terms of potential total numbers. So I think that he, and, you know, as a rebel, he had to sort of display to the political community at large that he was a viable concern. So I think he had to keep his forces largely together in order to accomplish his goals. So I think, basically, that he kept his forces largely together and proceeded in what I kind of think of as a westward hook we know of basically three named battles that happened before the Redgrass Field. The Battle over the Mander, or at the crossing of the Mander, the Battle at the Gates of Lannisport, and the Battle at the Golden Tooth. And given that, we know that the Battle of Golden Tooth happened after the Battle at Lannisport. It probably didn't go from east to west, but west to east. So what I think happened is that Damon assembled his forces in the Reach, given that that was the base of his power, and that he began to move west in something halfway between a royal progress and a a recruitment drive and a raid. There was this initial battle where local, um, largely Reacher loyalists, but also we know the Penroses were involved, trying to block his progress. I mean, I think it's instructive that the battle uh, where Fireball cut down the Sons of Lady Punrose happened at the crossing of the Mander, because that's a, a key moment where you can block the enemy trying to move. And, you know, there's some interesting things that are sort of make me think that this was the first battle. The Lord Paramount of the Reach is not there. You've got Stormlanders who were there, which is kind of suggest that the Loyalists were kind of pulling together anyone who was on the spot. And the fact that we know that there were then several battles in the west, which is, you know, he would have had to, to march west. I then think the next battle happened at the gates of Lannisport, because we hear that uh, Fireball killed Lord Lefford, and Lord Daemon Lannister, who is the later known as the Grey Lion, had to retreat back into Casterly Rock. This is where I think Blackfy- uh, Daemon Blackfire's success in recruiting these Ambitious second houses really came into its own because, unbeknownst to both Lord Lefford and Lord Damon Lannister, uh, Damon had the support of some of the most powerful houses in the Westerlands. He had the support of the Rains, he had the somewhat tepid support of the Tarbecks, and given that uh, the famous Knight um, Red Tusk was one of his key supporters it's quite possible that he also had the Krakowas involved. I also think that this Westerlands campaign was very important politically for the Blackfires because here is an example, right? He started out as a rebel. He's got this base in one of the the Seven Kingdoms, right? But it doesn't necessarily go beyond that in terms of where, you know, he's in predominance. And all of a sudden, between the, the Battle of Lannisport and the Battle of Golden Tooth, He's now got two kingdoms, right? He's literally doubled his uh, his support, and he's now shown that he's the one dictating the war, and he's the sort of successful general. So I think that's the sort of thing that would begin to change people's minds if they were sort of wavering. Given that he then has now gone from Lannisport to... Uh, the Golden Tooth, right, the next logical direction from there is the Riverlands, which we know there were a whole bunch of battles uh, between the Black Dragons and the Red Dragons in the Riverlands. It's also, you know, next to the Reach, Damon had a lot of support in the Riverlands. So I think he sort of saw that as a kind of a combination raid and recruitment, right? As he's passing through the Riverlands, he can pick up the supporters uh, who are loyal to him, he can smash the Loyalists before they can get to rendezvous with uh, with Daron's forces down by King's Landing and sort of steamroll his way uh, to uh, King's Landing. So that's my theory.
3: Okay, Jim, your version. Fire away. Yes, my, my idea is a little different, and it's based on the, the idea of defeat in detail, which is a historically very cunning move where if you are outnumbered globally, but you have a force majority locally, you use your force majority to smash as many pieces of your enemy as possible, defeating them in detail so that they can't combine into one force that's too large to overthrow you. Uh, the famous historical examples, it could be the Shenandoah Campaign in the American Civil War, the Battles of the Upper Batas in the Second uh, Punic War. Those are the types of ideas that I have. So what I think happened is that Damon dispatched Bittersteel, who grew up in the Riverlands and knew mo- most of the lo- locals there, to go and drive up his local support there. And there, probably, yes, uh, he led the forces from Stonehenge to go and attack Raventree Hall because that sounds like a very really bracken <laughs> thing to do. Meanwhile, Fireball and Damon are leaving King's Landing, going to the Reach to muster their support. The Penroses attempt to intercept them at the Mander. And I think that's because I mean that's because uh the Penroses are married twice over in the family at this point. Uh, Elena Targaryen and Aerys, the first Targaryen are both married to the Penroses. And Fireball just smashes them. And they use that. That is their gull town. That is the battle that they use to say, listen, we aren't just some simple adjutants talking about some horrible Thing that happened to us. No, we are a legitimate military force. And then once they unite in the Riverlands and get the bulk of their forces, I think that Damon dispatches Fireball on his great left hook. And that that is where I uh, agree with uh, Steve's uh, track is that, but it's just that Fireball is con- commanding his left wing because at this point, Fireball has saved Damon's life I mean if he if he wants command he's going to get it. In feudalism which is so deeply personal doing something like saving the life of the king is going to get you enormous clout if you want to lead a force. And despite and this is also Fireball wanted to be a king's guard and part of the king's guard's duties is protecting the king but also being the king's fist when you need it. You see Berist and Selmy leading at the Trident. You see Lewin Martell leading at the Trident. These Kingsguard knights will act as the king in his in his uh, offensive campaigns, and I think that Fireball went to the west taking uh, Red Tusk, Rob Rain, all of his famous Westerlander knights, while Damon compiled his forces in the east, grabbing, grabbing as much support as he can, and Keeping his forces massed at the east so that
0: the Stormlands don't try anything foolish yet again. I like it. Yeah, I I definitely agree with Bittersteel and the Riverlands. Certainly that's where he's from. He may have even been there at the time. He may not have been at court when the arrest order was given, although he may have been by then. Damon had presumably already given his hand in marriage to his, his daughter's hand in marriage to Bittersteel. We were told that Bittersteel's whispers in Damon's ear grew louder once that uh, betrothal was made. Of course, it had to be a betrothal. Kala was too young to marry Bittersteel by that point. They wouldn't have consummated the marriage until well after the rebellion was over, unless Bittersteel is even creepier than he seems. Anyway, uh, so I really like both of those scenarios. I can't pick which one I like better. I didn't offer my own version because I don't think there is really a, a third version. I, I see the merits of both of those ideas and I don't have anything strong to counter to make counterpoints on either of them. So... There you have it. Two expert opinions on how the early campaigns went, and I'm very pleased with those.
2: One thing that uh, we forgot to mention, but that's an important factor in both of our theories, is the role of the Ironwoods in Dorne. Ah, yes. Which is almost a sort of a separate theater unto itself. But uh, both Jim and I agree that we think that the role that the Ironwoods were supposed to play was in keeping the Dornish from linking up with the loyalists in King's Landing so that when the final battle would come Damon and his brain trust thought that they would have the whole of their strength against only part of the loyalist strength
0: Agreed uh, that's obviously with the with the boneway being the nasty pass that it is it's uh, a smaller force can definitely hold back a larger force But what it seems like it happened was that the Ironwoods were somewhat successful in holding back the Martell and Allied Loyalist armies, but they may have been caught in a pincer movement as the Stormlanders came south through the pass while the Loyalist Dornish came north through it, and thus the Ironwoods would be caught between two armies. And of course, that's almost never a situation you can win in, especially being outnumbered, even with the pass muting the numerical superiority. So... I agree. That's very important. We, we would wonder, it would be interesting if the Iron Islands and North had been involved. You'd have to see maybe, a, you might see, if the North was taking Damon's side, you might see Daron positioning an army at, south of the Neck to try to contain them. And it's possible that there were some army, an army, Damon's army, would might have been positioned, or a army of daemons may have been positioned to keep the Veilmen bottled in. But clearly that didn't work, if that is the case. It may have been what Manfred Lofton, who was said to have betrayed Damon on the eve of Redgrass Field, he presumably was the Lord of Harrenhal at the time, he may have been charged with protecting the rebel rear as it moved towards King's Landing, protecting them against exactly what happened, which was the Vale army cutting them off on their way there. But that's just a guess, of course. But we, we do know that Harrenhal betrayed Damon, but we don't know in what way and at what time besides that it was pretty near to the red grass field happening so a lot of uh, very interesting possibilities there we won't learn more about that until fire and blood comes out unless george randomly throws in some tidbits here and there i'm not really don't really see where that would come up i don't think it would come up in duncan ag i really don't see it happening in a song of ice and fire so fire and blood it is hopefully that book comes out (laughs) less than 10 years from now i don't know (laughs) so let's see let's move on we talked a bit about how this was a bit of a more chivalric war than most. Part of it is that both sides were aiming to be legitimate. They wanted to show that they were the better king. And you don't prove yourself the better king by being cruel and by doing awful things to people that you defeat. Civil wars can often be extremely nasty. This, the Dance of the Dragons, for example perfect example like we hear all throughout the princess and the queen and in the world of ice and fire all these atrocities cruelties torture psychological torment all these different things The dance out all of that now we don't hear about that with the black fire rebellion that might be partly because of the lack of information in general but and surely some of these nasty elements were present but i believe they were less present and i believe that the later black fire rebellions probably grew nastier as the blood Bad blood between the two sides got thicker and deeper and the grudges got hammered on by time. So I do think, though, that people behaved better as far as wars go in the first one. So the, in the scenarios that Stephen and Jim just outlined, we talked about the crossing of the Mander. Well, one of the things that happened there was that Fireball killed all the sons of House Penrose, except the youngest, who apparently he spared as a kindness to Lady Penrose. Which even Dunk admitted was chivalrous. Then, of course, Damon himself, with Gwen Corbray's fall in their battle, their duel, he paused his advance in order to let Gwen get uh, the medical attention he needed. Do you guys know of any other examples of chivalry, or or do you have any comments on this this uh, aspect of the war in general?
3: Well, there seems to be less chevauche in this war than there is overall, and part of that has to be because. The goal is the throne, not just the destruction of who, the, the enemy. So whoever takes over is going to have to reseed the burnt fields, it's going to have to repair the, the roads. So the goal is, just like uh, Varus, who's trying to leave Westeros intact as much as possible to s- facilitate a smoother transition for his chosen claimant, which is uh, Aegon the Sixth. So, I'd see that both of these people, because neither Damon nor Daron, nor Bittersteel or Fireball or Bloodraven are, are unintelligent men. They're all very intelligent men and have to know that at some point, whoever wins is going to have to take over what remains.
2: I also think the decisiveness of some of the early battles helped, in the sense that, you know, Damon's clearly in charge of the Reach. Given that, there's not going to be a whole lot of prolonged fighting inside the Reach, right? You know, if you're on the wrong side, you're going to stay pretty quiet about that so that you don't get your house burned down. Likewise, you know, the speed of his victories in the West, he just seems to have knocked out the Westerlands in two fights. That's not anything like Robb's campaign in the Westerlands, for example. You beat two armies in the field and you move on. In no small part because you've got the reins and the tarbex and the possibly the crate calls standing by saying, like, don't burn down Lannisport. We want that when we win. <laughs>
0: That's our prize. Yeah, hold on to that. <laughs> so it's interesting to look at things like say Stan the example of Stannis, who commanded his army not to rape and took action when they did. I don't know. I wonder how it was with Damon's men. I could see it going either way. Maybe men would follow Damon's lead and, and not do these awful things. Or maybe Damon was the guy who liked being liked and just let people do what they wanted because that went along with what he was. Maybe somewhere in between. I don't know. And But of course, so many of these factors and these behaviors, they do trickle down from the top. Leaders give orders, but they also set examples by their behavior. And both Darren and Damon were decent guys in general. This can range anywhere from Robert Baratheon style where men gladly and willingly follow despite the great danger to themselves because they're in such awe of the man and such, you know, inspired by the charisma all the way to the other side of the spectrum where we have say, Theon Greyjoy, where men were only following him because Balon ordered them to and being labeled a traitor or a coward is culturally speaking worse than being led by an incompetent. So all these factors of loyalty and motivation and justice are the keys to another huge factor, which is morale. As we've already done in past episodes it's easy to make comparisons between damon blackfire and robert robert baratheon i want us to consider the difference in motivations though napoleon bonaparte himself believed morale outweighed all other factors combined by about three to one which is a really huge statement and there's the old saying that there's no man as terrifying as one who truly believes his cause is just i believe plenty of damon's followers believed that his cause was truly just But on the other side, in the case of Robert versus Ares, Robert's cause was about justice, not about a just cause. It's different. Overthrowing a cruel tyrant, Daron was not a cruel tyrant. There's no argument for that there. On the other side, though, Ares's men may not have had such strong convictions, but I think Daron's men at least had somewhat strong convictions because at least they knew they weren't defending some awful, cruel man. So guys, who do you think had the edge in morale? You think Damon's men had the edge or Daron's? Damon. Damon. Okay, yeah, I think we all, I think we all three agree on that.
2: Well, I mean, especially as those opening battles take place, it's like, you know, news spreads slowly in Westeros, but it does spread. If you're hearing that, you know, the black dragon has just conquered the Westerlands or that, you know, he's riding unchecked through the Riverlands or that, you know, the whole of the Reach is declared for him and the only thing you're hearing from the loyalist side is we're getting our ass kicked. The hand's incompetent. We think he might be a traitor. You know, the Dornish can't link up with us because of the Ironwoods. That's a <laughs> lot of bad true. news to absorb uh, I'd really say David's
0: followers were really brimming with confidence. And by the time the Redgrass Field battle happened, everybody knew it was kind of all or nothing by that point. That I think everybody realized the size of the conflict, which we're about to describe, that it all was going to be down to that point. And... Daron's followers in general may have had more at stake. A lot of them were protecting what they had. They stood to lose more because we were talking about how a lot of Daron's followers were these lords paramount, the guys who were tops in their region. You can't really go up from there besides becoming king, which isn't feasible. But you can go down though. You can certainly fall from the top. And a lot of these number two houses were looking for that opportunity. And so some of them were taking a risk as well, but not as much. In general, Damon's followers had. Less to lose, and more to gain, where Daron's people were trying to hang on to what they had. It all came down to that. And so it went. Now, let's move on to the actual battle itself. You can shop at Amazon.com through HistoryOfWesteros.com. Any of the links on the right sidebar will lead you into the History of Westeros portal through Amazon. Uh, As long as you find yourself in at Amazon through our site, Anything you shop there will be credited to us. There's always excellent Game of Thrones items for sale there. The Night of the Seven Kingdoms, I highly recommend. There's a lot of great art. There's like 160 new illustrations in there. Black and white, really good stuff. And the Game of Thrones coloring book is coming out soon. Not the typical item you would expect to see, but it's pretty cool. I think we're going to see some neat things come from that. When when people start posting their own... uh, their own pictures of what they've done. So share those with us if you if you take uh, draw any your own, send them send us pictures. We'd love to see them. Part four: The day the grass bled. Whatever our guesses were to this point, whatever we got wrong or right, well, somehow things got to this very last, this most decisive, most epic chapter: the battle itself. And this, at least, we do know quite a bit about some things we're told straight up others we've deduced others we've inferred we've made a few assumptions but not too many and we'll say when we're doing that surely future details from the great george r R. martin will enhance and enlighten much of this some of what the maesters and sir eustace and others tell us may not be how future sources saw things we may get different takes on a lot of things some of them may contradict the extra mystery makes it all the more fun and the lack of certainty gives us room to be creative with ideas on what happened during all of the Blackfire rebellions, but especially today's topic, the Battle of Redgrass Field. So let's go. Sufficient support
2: had been gathered; the manpower was there, or so it seemed. Damon and his generals were surely quite confident, and his followers were caught up in a wave of hero worship. Damon's popularity had done its job, and his friends and advisers were clearly a competent bunch. Waiting didn't seem likely to help much, and it could have hurt and it doesn't seem like a bold warrior king would plan a long-term campaign, a war of attrition, or anything like that. And certainly no tricks either. This was a man supposedly living up to the chivalric ideal, which meant direct confrontation to prove without a doubt who is stronger. Not the most smart, not the most cunning, but the strongest. The lowest common denominator, but also the highest. There may have been other reasons for the timing. Perhaps he knew things weren't going quite as well... As he thought in Dorne, or guessed that they might not, given what his advisors knew of the situation. The sources are in conflict on the timing, but only by a few months. Sometime late in 196 or early in 197, whatever it was, Damon went directly for the throat, King's Landing itself. Taking the capital would be the end of the war, assuming he captured Damon. Excuse me, Daron. It would be a huge win in any case. And there would be other royals likely to be there as well, as like Prince uh, Eris and Prince Ragel. But the loyalist armies were not about to let, let down King Dare on the good, and as Damon's host rushed to deliver the final blow, they were intercepted. The armies were in formation, or at least had enough warning of each other's proximity to allow for proper disposition. A large-scale pitch battle was about to begin, the likes of which Westeros had never seen.
0: Okay, uh, Jim? You had some very good thoughts on the size of the armies based on you know some of your own expertise. So why don't you take us through a little bit of that, and, and Stephen, I know you have some thoughts on that as well.
3: Well, this is certainly the most decisive battle of this campaign. And to compare it to other decisive battles in Westeros, we have the Field of Fire, which is about 60,000 troops overall. We have the Battle of the Trident, which is 85,000. And we have the Battle of the Blackwater, which I do believe before you got to the before the Tyrells showed up was thirty-one thousand, and then the Tyrells showed up with their massive, in what we call Crusader King in Crusader Kings Two terminology, as the Uh, (laughs) Doomstack. But if we were to, if I were to compare this, we said that there are ten thousand dead, and you're going to probably say maybe half again that many wounded, or maybe even closer to. just 100% more wounded. Uh, Medieval battles were notoriously bloody, but there's a difference between dying on the battle of battle wounds and dying of infection two days or three days later. And I'm not exactly sure what that 10,000 dead is, just the people that died or the people that died of infection later. But if you figure anywhere from a one-third to one-half casualty ratio, you're looking at around 85,000 people total at the Redgrass
0: Field, which is about right, I'd say. Yeah, that's a, it's a huge number, but I do think it's right, yeah.
2: Looking at those numbers, I mean, this is roughly comparable, I think, to the, the famous battle of Towton during the, the uh, Wars of the Roses, where roughly 1% of mm-hmm. uh, the adult male population of the UK died on the battlefield, which is just quite mm-hmm. astonishing mm-hmm. For, for any single battle. And I think the
3: Those are black plague numbers. <laughs> yeah.
2: And I think the fact that like people afterwards talk about this the number of casualties that they keep saying ten thousand over and over again suggests something of the scale. That it was definitely probably, you know, definitely towards the, the higher end of our estimates.
3: And we have to know that most of the kingdoms of the seven kingdoms were present at this battle. They may have not have all shown up at the same time. But pretty much the entire fighting population was there at that moment. And we don't have the North and we don't have the Iron Islands, but we do have the Westerlands, Riverlands, Reach, Dorne. We, we basically have, we have the Trident all over again. And 85,000 was the number at the Trident.
0: So I'd say that that's what we have. Okay, so real quick, the other big question, where was the Redgrass Field? Let's give some quick opinions on where you think it was. Okay, well, based on my theory about the the western hook, given that
2: uh Fireball won the the battle of the Golden Tooth going west to east, and then there was a uh you know battles in the Riverlands, I think that that Damon was marching south, which would probably put the Redgrass Field somewhere to the north of King's Landing. Um and this would also, by the way, explain the betrayal of House Loston because that would put Heron Hall in his rear, in a place where it could do maximum damage.
3: And I think it's on the other side. Uh, Going from my scenario where there's a bunch of small battles, eventually, Damon sends out the call to unite his banners and go for King's Landing. So they all congregate on the Reach. Moving towards the northeastern part of the Reach is probably where they all meet up, because there's no sense in them marching west to then march east. So then I would say that the Redgrass Field is south of King's Landing, and my basis for understanding this is that Dorne hits Dorne and Baylor's march hits them coming from south to north. They're not going. I mean, Dorne is south. Dorne and the Stormlands are south, so they have to be marching north to hit Damon in the rear, which means that Damon must be facing north. And so my explanation for the Battle of Harrenhal, or sorry, the Betrayal of Hall was that uh, Lord Lothston was to blockade the high road. And stop the Vale army from marching. And they didn't do it. They said, You're not gonna leave us just alone to fight the Vale. No, we we give up. You know, don't leave us to twist in the wind. And so they let the Vale pass, and the Vale was able to assemble at King's Landing to intercept them south on the Redgrass Field.
2: Yeah, that's that's the issue, is we don't know the only thing we know about the battlefield itself is that there is the weeping ridge. Right. We don't... Right
1: up
0: the
2: news, yeah. yeah, that could be a foot tall. It could be 10 feet tall. It could be 20 feet tall. We just don't. know.
0: Right. So there are, both of those are very good scenarios. I like both ideas. I definitely can't say one is way stronger than the other. So keep both versions in mind. One day we'll learn the truth, probably. But let's look at things at a different level right now. Every once in a while... I throw out a reminder that A Song of Ice and Fire is about characters more than anything else. The world is sprawling, the plot is engaging, the writing is genius, the battles are awesome, but the characters come first of all. History of Westeros podcast will always try to reflect that in our analysis, even in an episode focused on a battle. Heck, especially in an episode focused on the battle. We've read The Battle of the Blackwater, The Battle of the Green Fork, and others. Those scenes are amazing, and it's partly because he injects so much human element into them. Also because he's a great writer. Chaos and desperation are always apparent in these scenes. But on the other side of that golden dragon lies focus, determination and the eagerness that comes with being so close to a long sought after goal. So let's take a moment to talk about what the different armies were thinking. There are six different armies, essentially the right, left and center for each side. Each one of those has its individual leader, individual commander. And each one of those commanders has their own thing in mind as terms of what they expect to get out of this war, this battle, what their ambitions are, etc. So we're going to do some rapid fire back and forth as we talk about their ambitions and then the action itself. So let's go.
2: Okay, so we start with the rebel vanguard, which was led quite naturally by Damon Blackfire himself. And at this moment, he must have been feeling supremely confident. The whole war had been going his way. And here he was, almost at the gates of King's Landing, with one battle to decide who was going to win. So, you know, having raised this army, having seen the support, having had all of these wins, he must have felt supremely confident. On the other hand, he's just lost his greatest general, Fireball. The the man who had saved his life, who who had won the West for him, had just taken an arrow to the throat, the day before completely randomly out of nowhere so you know i think he would have been uh somewhat you know taken aback by that but given everything else you know that was sort of the fly in the ointment so to speak i think he might have also potentially drawn determination that like
0: you know win this one for the for the fireball as it were <laughs> for the fireball um, <laughs> yeah Meanwhile, he, you know, and Damon, I also wonder if Damon was worried about his children, but probably not. He seemed like he was kind of, he probably had that taken care of, but I guess it may have been in the back of his mind. Well,
2: he had no less than two of them with him. That's he true.
0: <laughs> his two 12-year-old risking, squires, yeah. So let's, so the Rebel Center, led by Lord Gorman Peak. Most certainly his army was comprised of Reachmen, his own, and probably his own Bannermen, and, and some other houses that joined Damon. He seems to be more than a competent fighter, and as with many very high-born, very ambitious types, he probably didn't lack for confidence. He will later heroically slay Sir Arlen of Penetry's squire Ryer, Ryer Roger, <laughs> creating an opening for S- Sir Duncan the Tall. So, without taking, without Sir Arlen taking on Duncan's squire, there's no meeting with Egg and no Best Buzz wandering the Seven Kingdoms. So, hey, thanks, Peek, Seek. Eager to advance his ambitions, very strong chance he had a mind to be Damon's hand of the king. Perhaps in parallel to Makar and Bloodraven, Lord Peak might think Bittersteel too lowborn and powerless to deserve the position over him. Like Makar, he could have been wrong, but we'll never know.
2: It's also quite possible he wanted to become the new Lord Paramount of the Reach.
0: I think that's for certain, yes. <laughs> the Peaks and their ambition foiled so many times.
3: And bringing up the rear would be the Rebel rear, and that is led by Bittersteel. And that is presumably staffed mostly by Riverlanders and anyone else that would probably be in comprising his unit. Now, one of the things that Bittersteel is known for, his defining emotion seems to be hate, spite, and anger. And those are very destructive emotions, but on a battlefield, they actually have a good purpose. You can use those, that hate, that anger, that just unbridled fury, to banish the weaker emotions that you have. love Fear, anxiety, doubt. And he's also probably looking at this battle as just the chance to finally get his. He has been constantly overshadowed. He is the only one of the great bastards to not get anything out of Daron. He is the... He wanted to kill Bloodraven for taking away Shearest T-Star... He wanted to kill Daron almost certainly for neglecting him, and I just imagine that every single person that he saw that saw Daron's favor, he sees as something that maybe he should have gotten instead. And so I'm thinking that more than Damon, more than Gorman Peak, Bittersteel is the one who wants to take out as many people of Daron's as possible. But his ambitions aren't just the the bloody. If He is a heroic bastard who, who basically helps his king win. And there's another famous heroic bastard who helps his king win, uh, and that was Oris Baratheon. So he might have seen himself as perhaps a new Lord Paramount under Daemon, possibly getting Storm's End in, uh, in honor of Oris Baratheon's great achievements,
2: or the Riverlands.
0: Yeah, or some Riverlands seat. Maybe he expected, I don't know, by the time they learned of Manfred Lofton's deceit, he maybe he was like, well, now I'm going to get Hall, That's right. It's <laughs> possible, too. He could, have got, he could have had his eyes set on Hall, which never ends well for anyone. Yeah, that's true. Although, without a doubt, I would think he expected a, a seat of some kind upon the winning of this battle, which obviously didn't happen. Okay, so let's talk about the loyalist side.
2: Okay, so in the Loyalist vanguard, uh, we have Lord Donald Arryn, uh, the Lord Paramount of the Vale, uh, obviously bringing uh, the the Knights of the Vale with him. Uh, Potentially also uh, some some Loyalist uh, Riverlanders who managed to make it out of the fighting there and get their way down to King's Landing. Um, And, you know, in terms of what he's thinking, I mean, certainly the Arryns are by nature, uh, you know, focused on honor and, uh, you know, respectability, so there's the sort of the sense of, you know, he's a traditionalist, he's going to support the king. Uh, there's also a family connection, right? Prince Ragel is married to, uh, Alice Aaron, uh, who might have been his daughter, his sister, certainly some female relation. He's also the Warden of the East, so he's got a royal office. Um, and... You know, like the Arryns before him, I think there was this sense that the benefit, uh, the good of House Arryn goes with being the closest of the great houses to House Targaryen. You know, they're not, uh, you know, they're not the richest, they're not the most numerous, but they are the most loyal. He's also happens to be the only Lord Paramount on the field at the moment. Um, you know, Daemon Lannister had always had already been beaten. Leo Longthorne never showed up. The Starks, the Greyjoys, they don't take apart. The Tullys probably had been forced back into uh, River Run. The Martells were on their way. The uh, Baratheons were on their way, but they weren't there yet. So, as far as the sort of the base of Daeron's political support, he's it.
0: As far as the center goes, the Loyalist Center was led by Lord Hayford, the newly named Hand of the King, after Lord Betterwell was dismissed for his incompetence-slash-foot-in-both-camps policy, whatever it was. So he's most likely leading, as a member of House Hayford, he's most likely leading the men. Perhaps some, some men came over from the Valerians and the Celtigars, as well as the Masseys and Duskendale and the stokeworths etc most of those are the most likely to stay loyal to daron and he's likely in charge of them there may have been some riverlands men that stayed loyal that fought their way out of there this is perhaps where they'd wind up as far as which army now lord hayford was said to be stalwart from the first he'd be quite immune to Damon's charm and appeal perhaps a man of high character who valued peace and daron's rule or perhaps a man who just really valued loyalty and his vows to the iron throne or saw an opportunity to make a name for himself as the new hand of the king. Either way, he seems to have done a good job, even though he fell in the battle a bit later. And in the rear is which we have uh, Prince Makar Targaryen,
3: who is a young man. Uh, he is no older than 22 and is probably in his late teens or 20. Uh, we don't have a specific birthday for him. Uh, he is eager. He has to be because he knows that he is the last line of defense between him, between Damon Blackfire and his his royal father. Um, as to who is in his army, I do believe Makar was Prince of Summerhall by this point, so he probably has some Stormlander men. Anyone who could uh, bring into his uh uh, com- uh his thing, as well as uh, he probably has a uh, unit of the Kingsguard. One of the members of the Kingsguard is probably protecting him. Uh, and any loyal, any loyalist Reachers, especially those maybe in the northeast of the Reach who are uh, either beaten away by uh, uh, the uh, Daemon's forces, or just knew they couldn't stand up to Daemon's large army by themselves and massed at King's Landing. So he is—he is it. He is eager,
0: young, and ready for action, and he's going to have a lot of it in this battle. Right on. Okay, so let's do it. That is the dispositions and ambitions and possible thought processes of the six different leaders. Let's go to the actual battle. Start us off, Steven. Okay, so the rebels are making the first move.
2: Damon's host is barreling towards King's Landing. As we said, there's two possible directions that they could be coming from. Uh, Peak, Bittersteel, uh, as some of the leading commanders... Fireball, too, but he died just before. Uh, Sir Eustace is probably fighting with the Reacher men along with, uh, under excuse me, under Lord Peak.
0: That's right. And the Loyalists would be heading either, certainly the one army, this is the one thing we know for sure, the, the Loyalist army, the main army, the first one that comes in conflict uh, before the Stormlanders come with Baylor, They're heading southwest ish from the Vale. They put themselves in Damon's path, whether Damon was coming from the southeast or southwest or northwest. And they entrenched themselves perhaps as much as they could, given whatever time they had. The Hayford Center, Hayford is in the center, of course. Makar on the left, probably on the, on or in front of whatever high ground is nearby, not counting the Weeping Ridge. Potentially, that's a different high ground, but, uh, possibly. He, Bloodraven would have started off with some skirmishing. His men almost certainly were mounted. Whether they would you know, shoot the arrows from the back of horseback or not is, is a matter of... Uh, Well, not an important point to discuss right now, but undetermined. Usually archers, especially mounted archers, would be involved in skirmishing. So they probably saw a little early action. Nothing too major. But the first major action, as is typical, the vanguards come together. Lord Donald
1: Arran boldly led the vanguard of the royalist host, though his lines were shattered by Damon Blackfire, and his lordship in peril for his life until Sir Gwen Corbray of the Kingsguard appeared with reinforcements.
0: So the rebel vanguard was winning, and we're guessing Corbray was in charge of the reserve. This may have been a job to finish from a personal standpoint, re the Red Keep. Either way, it was a daunting task. And what I mean by reserve is not... To not as far as the reserve, as far as Makar's command, but a different reserve unit. Damon was the warrior himself that
1: day. No man could stand before him. He broke Lord Aaron's van to pieces, and slew the Knight of Nine Stars and Wild Will Wainwood before coming up against Sir gwain Corbray of the King's Guard. For near an hour they danced together on their horses, wheeling and circling and slashing as men died all around them. It's said that whenever Blackfire and Lady Forlorn clashed, you could hear the sound for a league around. It was half a song and half a scream, they say. But when at last the Lady faltered, Blackfire clove through Sigwain's helm and left him blind and bleeding.
0: Epic, I tell you. That's a long time, though. An hour, it's probably exaggerated. They probably didn't literally fight for an hour, but still, it was a long duel. So, bo- quite a bit had to be going on during that duel. It's not as if tens of thousands of men on both sides just stopped to watch. So, meanwhile... Bittersteel is in the rear, guarding his flank. At this point, the rebels must
3: have known that the Ironwood have collapsed and that the Dornish, and uh, are marching north, but Peake advances, probably doesn't charge the way the Vanguard does, but advances his infantry to face the Loyalist Center, and we have a nice quote, which, the Loyalist Center under Lord Hayford seemed to almost buckle as Lord Hayford fell. A lord with three castles on his shield cut him down. That's obviously Gormy Peake. So now the Loyalist Center hasn't routed but they are in disarray because they have lost their commander. Makar is holding his position for the moment, though both the band and the center are flagging. Uh, right, as, like I said, Makar knows that he is the last line of defense. He cannot afford to make a careless
0: move at this point. He's all that stands between Damon and his father. So this point looks kind of bad for the loyalists, doesn't it? I mean, real bad. You got two of the the two of the armies are engaged. The center, both centers, and both Vanguards are engaged, and both are victories for the Rebels. It looks real bad. But, something changed real quickly, didn't it?
2: Yeah. Next came the delay that meant everything, it seems. Damon's chivalry might have gotten the best of him. He fought valiantly and nobly, like Rhaegar on the Trident. After defeating the Kingsguard Knight, whom, to be fair, he probably knew quite well...
1: Damon dismounted to see that his fallen foe was not trampled, and commanded Red Tusk to carry him back to the maesters in the rear. And there, was his mortal error, for the raven's teeth had gained the top of Weeping Ridge, and Blood Raven saw his half brother's royal standard, three hundred yards away, and Damon. And his sons beneath it. He slew Aegon first, the elder of the twins. For he knew that Damon would never leave the boy whilst warmth lingered in his body. Though white shafts fell like rain, nor did he, though seven arrows pierced him driven as much by sorcery as by blood raven's bow young amund took up blackfire when the blade slipped from his dying father's fingers so blood raven slew him too the younger of the twins thus perished the black dragon and his sons
0: But not everyone is aware of this right away, right? The battle is huge. The Loyalist van is completely broken. They may not know that Damon is dead. The center is probably still fighting the other center. They may not know he's dead either. But Bittersteel, while he's in reserve, he may be looking for an opportunity to flank, and this may be of when he noticed. And on the Loyalist side,
3: Makar, now noticing that the Royal Standard has fallen, and knowing that the Hayford Standard has fallen, is now, in no uncertain terms, the commander of the army. So he's likely moving to the center, rallying as many people as he can. He probably appoints um, one of the, ki- the King's Guard, or possibly a, a lord who happened to just be a friend of Mekar, as strange as that sounds, to, be, to, uh, to command the left. And he is rallying all of his forces, saying, we can win. We can win. We must hold. And this is very important. And I think that Makar doesn't get a lot of credit. I know I've recently written an essay about Makar, how he just does not seem to get, get get a break. This is an incredibly heroic move by Makar because Makar is essentially saying, I will stand. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I'm not sure how familiar anybody is with the Battle of Gettysburg. But there was Solomon Meredith commanded the Iron Brigade. And when Reynolds' first corps retreated from the Battle of Gettysburg, Meredith was commanded to hold the last drop of blood. And he lost three-fourths of his men doing so. And that is essentially what Makar is saying. He is saying, I'm going to hold this army until the last drop of blood. Or until
0: something else happens.
2: Right. Because... South of Redgrass, Baylor is leading the Stormlords and the Dornishmen as fast as possible. From everything that we know, this was largely a cavalry force, so he's got momentum. And he is forced, probably force-marches his way all the way from the Way. Mm-hmm. You know, he is trying, because he understands that in- unless he gets there, that, you know, eventually uh, his side is going to be overwhelmed. But he's potentially anywhere from one to three hours away.
0: By now, Bittersteel would have noticed that Damon's fall, or at least learned of it. And this is an interesting question that we had to talk amongst ourselves during our preparation is how did Bittersteel get Blackfire without exposing him to the same storm of arrows that killed Damon? And that's because, it's actually a somewhat simple answer. It's because Bittersteel was moving. He, he's moving his cavalry force, attacking, whereas Damon's error was that he stopped. He stopped to help uh, Gwaine Corbray. And standing still is when you're a big target for arrows. It's pretty hard to shoot men on horseback going horizontally across your path with arrows. Even if they're coming right at you, it's hard to do because they're moving. So meanwhile, this has an effect. Bittersteel's move causes a ripple effect.
3: And this is actually possibly one of Martin's big themes where the personal interferes interferes with the political is that Bittersteel charges and he is the rear. So in, in essence, he is who would be engaging any forces that arrive from the rear of the army. And by doing this, he possibly leaves Gorman Peake's unit exposed to an attack from the rear. And so in essence, now Peak has an unsupported flank that is susceptible to an attack. So Peak, knowing that he has to get rid of Makar immediately, is pushing forward as much as he can. He needs to break Makar and the center before all hope is lost. He needs to do this and completely clear the field of enemies so that way he and all of his Reacher Lords are safe. So what happens next? So what happens next
2: is that Bittersteel has his famous duel with Bloodraven, wins it. The raven teeth are broken and forced to retreat just as Baylor Breakspear hits the rear of the Rebel Center.
0: Which we have a great quote for. But the battle came to an end when Prince Baylor Breakspear appeared with a host of Stormlords and Dornishmen, falling on the rebel rear. While the young Prince Makar rallied what remained of Lord Aaron's van and made an implacable anvil against which the rebels were hammered and destroyed.
3: And hammered they were. Makar took his forces and held position, which the sight of Baylor, probably the only time in Makar's life where he was actually happy to see Baylor, as Baylor's standard charges into the rear. That takes the pressure off of Makar's men, and then Makar is able to hold hold together. And now, because Baylor's cavalry or B- Baylor's forces are mounted, they are using that momentum to push uh, Cor- Gorman's infantry out of cohesion. And once they get out of that tight formation, that's where Makar's forces just cut down the man that accidentally steps forward. And that's why hammer and anvil tactics are so effective in pre-modern warfare.
1: There was much and more afterwards, I know I saw a bit of it myself. The rebels running, bitter steel, turning the rout and leading his mad charge, his battle with blood Raven, second only to the one Damon fought with Gwane Corbray, Prince Belo's hammer blow against the rebel rear, the Dornishmen all screaming as they filled the air with spears, but at the end of the day. It made no matter. The
0: war was
1: done when Damon died.
0: As we said at the beginning, he was no mere outlaw lord to be set down at whim.
1: So close a thing if Damon had ridden over Gwynne Corbray and left him to his fate, he might have broken Makor's left before Blood Raven could take the ridge. The day would have belonged to the Black Dragons then, with the hands slain and the road to King's Landing open before them. Daemon might have been sitting on the Iron Throne by the time Prince Baylor could come up with his storm lords and his Dornishmen.
0: Now, Sir Eustace is biased, but I think he's probably right. Do you guys agree with that assessment, that if the pause was everything, that the, the moment of... Saving Gwen Corbray was that was was it is is too much made of that is Sir Eustace crying over spilled milk or how it went because it didn't go the way he wanted or you think he's probably right
2: I mean I think it's that's certainly one of the turning points I don't know it's the only turning point you know I think he he's got a point that the the Blackfires were depending a lot on momentum and having just crushed the the vanguard they've got this open flank that they could have potentially just rolled up the line in, in one movement, and that pause really prevented that from happening and gave Makar the opening to, to, you know, rally the center and, you know, keep that line together so that there was an anvil uh, at all. At the same time, you know, there's other possibilities. If Bittersteel had led his charge in a more productive direction than at Blood Raven's 500 archers... You know, if he had led the charge at the center, if he had led it at Makar himself, he might have been able to, you know, regain initiative in the battle. And, you know, Damon still had plenty of sons alive. He could have taken King's Landing in their name.
3: Uh, it's a common psychological coping technique to set blame on if only this, if only that. It, you use that to kind of uh, cast blame on something that was out of your control. And if you lose for something that was out of your control, then it's not really your fault, as opposed to, let's say, if you lost because Bittersteel went out of formation and couldn't intercept Baylor. or if we had actually planned our route a little bit better and had gotten there three hours earlier.
0: Definitely. Now, there's one last thing about the battle that we want to talk about before we close out the episode, and that is the immediate aftermath first another quote from sir eustace
1: had anyone come out differently it could have all turned the other way then we would be called the loyalists and the red dragons would be remembered as men who fought to keep the usurper darren the falseborn upon his stolen
0: throne and
1: failed
0: always important to note that history is written by the victors and had the battle gone differently, the victors would have written history differently. But that isn't what happened. Real quickly, we don't have as much time as we wanted to discuss the aftermath. But the some of the immediate things that happened were the rebels scattered. Leo Longthorne, perhaps kinda like Tywin or Walder Frey, attacked them as they were beaten, you know, to show, hey, this is what side I was on. And Bittersteel, somehow. Picks up Damon's remaining five sons and daughters, however many there were, including his own wife, Calabla well, betrothed Cal Blackfyre, and flees to Tyrosh, probably using the Tyrashi Navy.
1: Ten thousand men had died for Damon Blackfire's vanity. And many more were wounded and maimed. King Darion's efforts at peace had been shattered through no fault of his own save perhaps
0: too much mercy for his envious half brother something we touched on at the beginning that mercy definitely seemed to have played a big role in allowing the war to get to the point that it did so at some other point and throughout the other episodes that we have that we still haven't gotten to yet because there are others still that we have to do we'll deal with some of these things that we didn't quite have time for today a lot of the aftermath topics Old
1: fools and young malcontents still make pilgrimages to the red grass field to plant flowers on the spot where Damon Blackfire fell.
0: The last subject for this episode is Damon's legacy, but of course, like I said, we don't have a must time as we want to discuss it. Some of it will have to wait. But the gist of it is that the Blackfire Rebellion may have ended when Damon died, but the Blackfire cause certainly did not. He had sons, more family, and Tyrosh, his wife, lords, and knights who survived the battle. Of course, Bittersteel, whose Hate and anger, as destructive as they were, kept him going for a long time. And so long, in fact, that, like I said, we have more episodes to cover with the Blackfire rebellions. It's a huge topic. We'll still be doing an episode on Bloodraven. Damon's sons will need discussing, of course, too, as well. And the men that fought alongside those sons, especially the one who kept crowning them, Bitter Steel.
1: It would suit Lord Bloodraven if their names were all forgotten. So he has forbidden us to sing of them, but I remember Rob Rain Gareth the Grey, Sir Aubrey Ambrose, Lord Gorman Peak, Black Byron Flowers, Red Tusk, Fireball, Bitter Steel. I ask you, has there ever been such a noble company? Such a role
0: of heroes. Don't worry, sir, Eustace. We all remember. Now, here's our role of heroes. Our Patreon supporters, who make all of this possible. We would be seeing maybe a third to a quarter as many episodes if it weren't for you guys first lord cash craig hand of the king and lord of mines lord jim the fortuitous our guest today from wars and politics of ice and fire blog and warden of the west tell us again how to find you jim all right you can look at uh, brendanbfish.wordpress.com you can also check us
3: out on tumblr at WarsOfASOIF.tumblr.com. And uh, you can always check us out on Twitter at Wars of ASOIF, and each of the contributors at Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire have their own unique Twitter as well.
0: Right on. And, Stephen, while we're at it, thanks again. You've been such a huge part of the series, your third episode in the series with us, invaluable help. Tell everybody again how to find you. You can find me at
2: racefortheironthrone.wordpress.com. You can also find me at racefortheironthrone.tumblr.com or Stephen Atwell on Twitter.
0: Thanks again to Rainy's Targaryen, Queen of the Timeline, and provider of an excellent question that we're gonna answer at the end of the credits, so stay tuned for that. And special thanks to Kyle Maddock of a podcast of Ice and Fire for doing today's quote readings in a variety of voices, particularly Sir Eustace Osbrey. Thanks to Joey Townsend for the theme song, and to Jesse Kowal for the cover. All right, also thanks to Lord George Stormsville the Cunning, Lord of the Chiliad, and Warden of the East, Lord John Reed of Castle Woodbridge, the Lord Borealis, the Light of the North, and Warden of the North, Frontier Lord James Knox of the Poker Fort, Hammer of the Dornis Session, and Warden of the South. Our small consul is made up of Lord James the Scholar, Senior Counselor and Master of Whisperers, Grand Maester Itai, Lord Robert Jacobs, Master of Coin, Roysi the Clever, Master of Laws, Lord James Tuttle, Master of Ships, we also have Lady Direllis of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell, Breaker of the Second Stone. High Chieftain Drew of the Frostfangs, Lord of the Claymore. Lord Skip of the Velt, Lord of Castle Ganges. Cabeth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light. Mary Meg, Lady of the Bloody Stepstones. Lord Acerus of Dragonmont, Serpent in the Narrow Sea. Lord Damien Sand, the Resilient, Wielder of Valyrian Steel Spear Swan Song; Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort. Also a shout out to Sir Adam the Consumator and Sir Terence of the Cedars, Knight of Seat Pleasant. Uh, Lord Commander Shepard, Lord Commander George the Golden, King's Justice, Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian steel blade fate. A couple of extra minutes. I want to ask you guys, just as for fun, what would Damon have done had he won, not just in the war, that's too big of a question, but what would he have done with the Martells and Daenerys, his former love, and her children. What do you think would happen there? That's interesting. I mean certainly I think the you know
2: his intentions probably would have been to replace the the Martels with the Ironwoods or failing that to kind of uh turn the Ironwoods into an independent buffer state to weaken Dorn by splitting it into chunks. In terms of what he would like to do to Daenerys you know, we have that whole story about his idea of having a multiple marriage. I don't know if his ambitions were quite that crazy. Certainly, you know, if he had tried to go ahead with it, I think that could have broken his coalition, because that would have been seen as, you know, blasphemous, and knighthood is all about the the Faith of the Seven. <laughs> um, And he certainly would not have been very pleased with the fact that, you know, she was married and and had kids. Um. So I'm not entirely sure what he would have done with Daenerys.
0: Yeah, he wouldn't have done anything terribly cruel, but he might have done something. <laughs> he might have
3: decapitated Maron. <laughs> he
0: might have. He might <laughs> have. Yeah,
3: that
2: I think I think he could he could get away with because, you know, Maron would have been a chief enemy of his, a rebel. You know, that certainly would have definitely pleased mm-hmm. all of his marcher lord and reacher followers. It's like Yeah, we killed the head of House Martell. We're awesome. (laughs) But I, you know, trying to actually pull off a double marriage, I don't think would have, you know, at the very least, I think Bittersteel would have done something, you know, underhanded to make sure that did not happen.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I wanted to also thank Alicia Everlasting of the Greenblood, Lady of the Desert Rose, and First Sword Joshua Hayes Cutter, called Joshua the Raw. Normally, he's announced at the beginning of the episode, but I goofed. It happens. Thanks to everybody. Thanks again to Steven and Jim. We hope you all enjoyed our coverage of the Redgrass Field episode. It's been a long time coming. And there's, like I said, there's still plenty more to come in the Blackfire Rebellion series. We've got some other episodes that we're going to interject because we like to mix things up a little bit. And we like to take our time to make sure everything is set and make sure that we don't miss anything. And that occasionally involves finishing an episode, letting it sit for a while to make sure that we haven't forgotten anything. We want to let it sit and think about it and say, oh, wait, you know, there's some new ideas because there's always more. There's always new angles to find in A Song of Ice and Fire, even in this ancient material. It's great stuff. never ends. So, everybody, thanks again for tuning in. Valor Morgulis, thanks again to our guests. See you all next time.